Hi, I'm Lucas Mack, and welcome to another episode of The Golden Rule Revolution, where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. Today, my guest is Candace Sogren. She's an executive, a business leader, an entrepreneur, an investor, a columnist, and a coach for other entrepreneurs. Please welcome Candace Sogren. Candace. Hello. Thank you for joining the Golden Rule Revolution today. I appreciate it. I'm um, so excited to join you. Uh, it's it's an honor to have you on. Your experience in the business world, it's, it's inspiring for other entrepreneurs. I know you've been interviewed quite a bit um, as a business leader. And today, what I would love to get into is how how does the Golden Rule in business really solve the issues that we all want to have solved better, um, higher revenue, better relationships with customers and employees, um, greater accountability and responsibility in your experience, in your journey, how has the golden rule been impactful for you? Well, um, I, I think, you know, I, I've, I've actually had several lives. You know, I've worked in politics for many years and um, written legislation and then um, moved into business first as a startup and now with a company that will likely IPO. And um, and one of the things that, that comes up for me often, and I was just talking about this with my team at a quarterly business review maybe last week, um, is that confusion um, leads to uh, frustration, um, mm. which leads to a breakdown in communication. And so um, oftentimes what I'm finding, and I, I, I'm, I'm in one of those uh, scenarios right now in, in my work environment where one d- department, one team member is is simply just not meeting deadlines. And, and so I'm confused. I don't know why. Um, and because I'm confused, I'm frustrated. And what we often do and what I think the natural human reaction is, is to start to place blame um, and start to assign blame to other people when, you're, when there's confusion and frustration, rather than seeking out what actually might be happening for the other person, trying to understand what's leading to the confusion, trying to determine what I'm doing that that could be uh, a contributing factor um, to that confusion and and really shifting into a responsible mindset. And um, and I think that if we can each we can each walk into every you know business altercation, every every um, breakdown in communication with a what am I responsible for in mm. this? Um, I think it, you know it, it goes a long way to, to mending relationships, building um, building revenue, um, and and building strong strong business teams. There is, I think, business is a fascinating. It's a fascinating topic when it comes to the ability to make social change. I think for some people, um, some maybe even listening, they see business as impersonal, completely bottom line driven. Uh, it's just about data. There's no emotion to it. Um, it's cutthroat. And then there's this other side where there's a social consciousness within business where it's how do we treat people, um, relationship driven, um, and very heavily on the emotional intelligence side. And I've carried this view for quite a while and I've talked about it, um, publicly at different keynotes. I think business is the greatest mechanism to make social change within society 
because there's an old saying, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And businesses hold the hearts of humanity. We either have the ability to crush a heart or uplift a heart simply by how we treat our employees, our coworkers, our bosses. Yeah. What's your thought of that? It's interesting that you say that because, um, so I I worked at a different company um, prior to where I'm at today. And um, the company that I was at previously was also venture backed and, um, you know, a high growth business. And uh, the CEO and the vice president of sales um, during one of our executive team meetings um, said, everyone is replaceable here. Everyone is just a number. And that was the culture in the company um, Mm. from the top. And I remember thinking, what a horrible place to come to work at, you know, and and what what a horrible culture to be a part of. And I I kept trying to shift the culture, but it was so hard when when it was coming from the top down. Ultimately, that company failed. Mm. Um, and, and, And the company failed not only because they treated their employees that way, they treated their vendors that way. They treated their customers that way. And ultimately, they, you know, the, the company had no friends five mm. years into the business. And when they first, when they hit their first rough patch, there was no one left to defend them. Um, and, and the company ultimately went under. And, and so, you know, I, I, I learned a lot while I was there and I had left before the company went under, but, um, but just watching what happens when there is no love. And, you know, the, what's interesting is the board, the board chair of that company, we had a, you know, an offsite, an executive team offsite and the board chair, he, he gave us this, this team building exercise. And he said, what do you think drives success in our company? Maybe you'll start by saying money, money drives success. And he said, but money can always be lost and always be regained. And Mm. so then you say, well, maybe it's the metrics, you know, if we, if we are just like crushing it and if we're just bringing in the customers, then that defines success. And he said, well, you know, what happens in a a recession? What happens when one set of customers dries up? How then do you define success? And then we said, well, maybe it's wisdom, you know, maybe it, maybe it's that we just know more than everyone else and all of our competition. And, and he said, yeah, but then one of our employees could go to the competition and then They'll know that information too. And we ultimately came down to what makes a company successful is whether or not the team can love one another. Mm. Um, And love is the one factor that cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away. It cannot leave the company with one employee. Um, and, And I just thought that was a really, it was a great lesson that I wish the rest of the executive team would have heard from that board chair. The one word that is needed most is the one word that is usually excluded in business is the word love. And sadly this, I think it's, um, it's a lack of ownership, personal accountability to really push away that word. It was for me for a long time, for most of my life until I came to really look at myself and who I was in light of who I wanted to be and, and really the purpose that I felt. And it all came back to this word love. Did I feel loved? Uh, was I loving? Um, did I receive love? And and I took who I was into, I, had, I have a company, we've been in business 10 years and employees, and my own internal struggles really seeped out into my culture of my company. And I think the business community would be served incredibly well if we brought this word back into the boardroom. Uh-huh. 
I think so too. And I, I think that um, it's interesting. So, so my, my boss and I are very good friends and we had a conversation, I don't know, within the last month or so where he kept saying, well, you know, we're not a family, we're a team. And I said, what's so wrong with saying that we're a family? Like what's, what's so bad about that? Mm. Um, and you know, is it, is it, is it wrong for us to actually care about what the, what, what our coworkers, how they're, how they're living life and whether they're happy or not outside of the office, I can tell you it makes a huge impact on their performance inside the office. And so, so why wouldn't we treat each other as family? And it was almost like he thought it was a bad thing, you know? And, um, just, just like what you said about love, I thought, is it a bad thing for us to call one another family? I don't think so. Hmm. I think, well, we all, I think the word family is maybe it's so closely tied to the word love where we have these really um, unfortunate experiences with both the word uh-huh. love and family. So yes, I think it should be treated as a family. However, a healthy family, not the yeah. families that we've come from. Sure. And that's where I think people have um, blended their own experience with what should and can be uh, optimal, healthy, powerful, accountable, leadership, affirming, individually knowing every person in the culture, which then really goes and impacts the home life. I think this narrative right now in in America specifically where this anti-capitalist view is really due to the fact that parents were treated poorly by the business community and the children grew up listening to the pain caused to the parents around the dinner table or Uh the lack of the dinner table or whatever it was, but how business treats their employees, how leadership and business treats their employees will impact the home life. Uh And then the home life goes back out to the world and then has a point of view that may or may not be accurate. And if we can turn that around, I tell why I speak at colleges, I tell the college students, I, and it uh, like shocks them like a bolt of lightning. I say, I am a capitalist, yet I'm a moral capitalist. I believe in moral capitalism. And that is something that is not a dichotomy. It's actually blending relationships as the highest goal within business. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I would say I agree with you, but it's, it's been a recent shift for me. Um, I, in January of this year, I was, I recently moved in, into an executive role with a new company and, um, was building a business within the company and, um, was crushing it, you know, from, from all <laughs> metrics to all external I metrics. It. Um, I was, I was closing more deals than anyone else. I was generating more revenue for the company, you know, so from all external, um, uh, metrics, you'd say, oh yeah, this woman is crushing it. Um, mm. Except for the fact that, you know, I was, on, I was on a trip to Texas with uh, my boss and he said, you know, Candace, people are just complaining that you're not that likable. And mm. I got really upset. Um, and I said, you know, um, everybody else can just do their job. And mm. I was, and I said, you know, the pe- I, I, my, my response was the people who are probably complaining about me are the people who are not delivering. Um, and there's probably some truth um, to what I was saying, and <laughs> and I was treating everyone like numbers. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the the, th- the thing that I hated the most about the company I had just come from, I was creating 
in, in, the, in my new company. And, and I thought, how did this happen? How did I miss the message? Um, because I think of myself as a, as a socially conscious, emotionally intelligent woman, and yet I lost the message at some point, um, which is why I met you and why we went, ended up going through the leadership program we just went through is so that I could get, right. reconnect with my heart. Hmm. And, and since that, and since then, what's the results been for you professionally? It's, it's been interesting. So, um, uh, I, every, everyone on my team has been promoted, um, since January. So, so, and, and backing up at the point of January, I almost quit or could have been fired because of this likability issue, um, mm. even though I was the top performer in the company. And, and at the time, you know, my boss and I were having a serious conversation about whether I should quit or be fired. Um, and, um, and I had written an article that, you know, and, and implicated my boss. It was just a bad situation. And, uh, and, and then ha- after having gone through just reconnecting with my heart through this leadership program the Asc- at the Ascension Leadership Academy, um, I, uh, all, every one of my employees has been promoted. Mm. I have been given a promotion. Um, and, we, as a team, my team has grown from um, four of us to I think there's 15 of us now. Um, and the 15 of us have written a group contract about how we commit to being with one another, which cool. includes, you know, being flexible, willing to compromise, assuming positive intent, giving honest feedback, being trusting and trustworthy. Um, this has all happened just in the last four or five months since I've reconnected with my heart. The heart, the heart in contrast to the mind in business, it's so mind driven and it doesn't have to be. I think there's no transaction that takes place on an ongoing long-term basis. If there isn't trust and trust is the last ingredient needed to form a real relationship. We have to know, like, and trust someone to have a relationship and for a, a short time, there can be transactions in business if we know someone and like them, but there will not be the long-term transaction, long-term um, ongoing sustainable business unless there's trust. And that trust is really a calibration of the heart. Do we, do we trust this person's intention, their ways of being? Are they good? Are they loving? Are they a person of a character and integrity? and values and morals and humility and all these things that stem from the heart. They don't stem from the mind. It's just our experience of someone's heart allows us to calibrate logically like, hmm, yes or no. So your story is incredibly powerful and it's a great example of what happens when we do drop down into our heart. But I think you couldn't drop down into your heart, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, until you did the work first to get your heart healed from all the hurt. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there, there's, there's a piece of that. And I think the piece for me also was that you mentioned that, you know, in your business and with your employees, that your personal life, whether you're happy or unhappy, it it always bleeds into your work life. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, um, I think, um, uh, unintelligent for us to think that, we that, that our personal lives don't impact our, our day-to-day business interactions. Mm. And, you know, in January of, of this year, I had a miscarriage and I felt like I was losing control in my personal life. 
And as a result of that feeling of losing control in my personal life, I started to micromanage my business life. Um, and you know, my husband likes to call it white knuckling. He said I was white knuckling <laughs> my way through life. And then so I, in order for me to change the outputs that I was, that I was providing in my company, I had to go back and figure out what inputs I could fix um, to, to bring myself back to center in my own personal life. Um, and, and I, and I think that honestly, it's a daily practice and it's not, it's not like at, at this point, I'm not forever changed. You even told me, Lucas, I, I said to you, I was hoping I would have been to the other side of all of this by the time we graduated from our leadership program. And you laughed and said, Candace, there is no other side. Mm. Um, and, and it, that reminds me that it's every day, a decision, every mm. day, a practice to choose love over fear, to choose heart over mind. And mm. some days are harder than others. And, and, you know, and, and that's where I think it's important that, that we start to build a culture of that in the workplace so that yes. it's not just me that people are looking to, to determine whether we're going to be a loving culture today or, you know, a, a calculating culture. Um, I, I need to build that in my team so that the team can support when I don't have the power to do it myself. We can't do it alone. In isolation, in isolation, we, we fall apart. There's a term, um, there's a term lone wolf that uh -huh. when people are not playing team, they're lone, lone wolfing it. Um, and if you really think about wolves and how they hunt, no wolf sustains its life long-term without the pack, because you can be a lone wolf and you can only get small prey, but it takes a pack of wolves to track, you know, large prey and really feed feed themselves and sustain themselves. So this this dichotomy between, yeah, we can go it alone. We think we have the ability, but it's really a short term gain, short term gain, as opposed to that long term sustainable, healthy life that we all want to live. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, what do, what's your well? Just you mentioned the lone wolf, and, and um, and we also had a conversation about you know um about seagulls or flocks of birds, and um, and it's the same thing with a flock of birds is that there's there's never one bird that remains at the head of the flock forever. Um, mm -hmm. you know, one bird leads until they 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 become tired and they fall to the back of the flock, and another pulls in front and leads for some period of time, and and there's a rotation that occurs. Um, and so no one person can sustain by themselves forever. They can't carry all the weight on their back forever. They've got to find a way to, to share, um, share the, the load, whether that, you know, whether that is, um, uh, uh, physically or intellectually. And, and I'm learning that right now. I am very, I'm famous for lone wolfing it. You know, I've started three companies of which each time I was the sole founder, you know, I just did not believe in co-founders and, um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I, and I, I thought only I could go raise that venture capital or only I, I could, could, you know, facilitate the sale of the company and this doesn't serve me anymore. I mean, I, I guess that, that works when you're playing small, that works when your, your business is only a million dollars in revenue. But what if you want to actually affect real change in the world? What if you want to create a global business? Um, what if you want to do something big? You can't do that by yourself. Um, mm -hmm. I, I actually just, I just interviewed, um, the CEO of a company called big ass fans. 
and uh, named oh, Car- yeah. Carrie yeah, Smith. He's a cool those dude. Fans, those fans are great. When I go into my clients' warehouses and those giant, cool-looking <laughs> fans are in there, I'm like, what is this? And those are big-ass fans. Yeah, yes, they are. <laughs> exactly. So, so I just interviewed him this weekend, and uh, and cool. he was just he was just saying that um, he said, yeah, when you're when you're the founder of a company and and you're you're in your early days, it's important for you to know everything um, enough so that you you can actually answer any questions that come up about your business. But at some point in time, you have to surround yourself with others um, mm. and you have to build your tribe. And he talked about how his company was his tribe and that when someone fell, you know, fell ill, the tribe came to protect that person. There was a woman in his team that, that um, her husband had died and they, he, they didn't have life insurance. And he actually found, you know, collected the $10,000 to help his employee bury her husband. And he said, that's what you do when you're a tribe. And as I was talking to this man, I just thought, oh, I want to come work with you, you know, because he's built this culture in his business. You know, he sold his company for $500 million a couple of months ago. And he's starting a new company called The Kitchen. And the very first decision he made with his five or six employees was, where are we going to locate? And the employees got to pick and they said, Austin. So they're moving the entire company from Kentucky to Austin because the employees actually have the voice. And I just thought, if only all companies could function like Carrie Smith's companies. Um, I just, it's, it, it, he was such a role model. It's such a cool story to hear. We need to hear more stories like that. I agree. The, that, that is such a great story. It's, um, sad usually that it's the negative stories it it's the negative stories that get the press yet the positive stories are the ones that inspire and uplift and are really the ones that we should all um keep as the north star of our ways of being in in business i agree take me take me back you know growing up actually explain where where do you come from how how did you get to where you are today because i think your journey is really a beautiful story of, of hope that doesn't matter where we start. It's, you know, that journey, there is no other side. It's just (laughs) being intentional and taking a step and, and, you know, walk us through, you know, how you've gotten to where you are. Sure. And, and I guess that maybe that can be the title of this particular interview is there is no other side. Um, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I, you know, I was uh, born in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, Northern Kentucky area. And, um, my, my mom had me very young. She had me when she was a teenager. Um, and we, you know, lived in a trailer park when I was, young. Um, I had an abusive father, um, and he left when I was five, six, which is probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me and my mom. Mm. And while he, and, and, and he never, you know, he never carried a job or anything. So my mom was always working two, three jobs, uh, so that we could live in a safe place. She actually purposely moved us into an apartment complex that, that was, um, a housing complex for retirees, um, so that I could have grandparents all around me all the time. And, um, mm. and so, so, you know, I, I had, I was very lucky to have one strong parent figure uh, growing up, uh, even though my father was abusive and and um, ended up leaving. Um, and so then I, you know, fast forward, I, I ended up being the oldest of five kids um, and uh, the first in my family to go to college and um, uh, went to Northern Kentucky University <laughs> undergrad and, um, and then decided to go to law school. 
Um, and uh, that was also a big first in my family. And um, between undergrad and law school, I actually uh, announced a candidacy for governor. <laughs> in 2002, I, I had awesome. a, I didn't yeah, know that. In 2002, I announced that I was running for governor of Kentucky in 2027, <laughs> a 25 year campaign. So, um, and, uh, and, and so that, that became a really important piece of who I was. I couldn't afford to go to law school. And, um, and so, uh, my boss at the time I worked at the chamber of commerce and my boss introduced me to a, a woman on our board of regents and, um, and I was telling her my life story and, you know, coming from poverty. And she said, I don't care about your past. We all have a past. What's your future? That's what I want to hear. And I was like, Oh, that part's easy. I'm going to change the world. And, uh, and she said, how? And I said, well, first I'm going to understand the law. Then I'm going to run a successful business. Then I'm going to teach others how to run successful business. And then I'm running for governor. And she said, well, okay, then I'm going to pay for you to go to law school. So wow. this woman, wow. Alice Sparks is her name, uh, paid for my law school education after a one hour lunch. And when I asked her, how can I ever repay you for this gift? She said, find a way to invest in women. And so I went to law school at night. I worked during the day for an investor. Um, and when I graduated, I started practicing law and I was practicing securities law, you know, helping startups to raise money and working with banks. And then the economy fell apart in 2008, 2009, and the bank stopped lending. And so I said, wow. okay, well, if the banks won't lend, I'll just be the bank. Can't be that hard. And so wow. I started my first company in 2010 called Bad Girl Ventures. And um, it was a, still is a microfinance company that makes loans to women-owned startups um, and uses behavioral-based underwriting rather than FICO scores. Um, and we would train these women over nine weeks and we'd watch their behavior and see if they were able to take coaching and um, grow their, their business and customer base. And then we'd make $25,000 0% interest loans to them. Wow. Yeah. And that's amazing. Yeah. So BGV has actually changed brands. It's now called Aviatrix Accelerators. It's one of the um, leading female accelerator programs in the country. It's been featured in Forbes. And, um, and so uh, what's cool about that is that we've now educated thousands of women. We've funded hundreds of women. Um, and our oldest bad girl was 92. Our youngest bad girl was nine. Um, we had a bad girl, Rosie Dean, the turkey farmer, uh, who came through our program. Um, wow. And so, yeah, so that was that was a, an amazing part of the story and a way for me to pay Alice back. And um, while I was going through BGV, I um, this is when Kickstarter and Indiegogo um, hit the scene. And so I started um, requiring that the women do a crowdfunding campaign before they graduate. And then I thought, you know, what if I could create a technology platform that could teach these women how to raise loan capital rather than donations. And so I started my second company in 2011, which was called Somo Lend, standing for Social Mobile Local Lending. And it was backed by the founders of Capital One. So I raised a couple million dollars, two and a half million dollars for that company. Um, but it was an illegal company. Uh, it was mm. violating federal securities laws, and I knew it because I was a securities lawyer. So I um, went to Washington, D.C., and I worked on a bill called um, the Jobs Act, which ended up making crowdfunding legal for equity and securities. And my bill passed into law. And wow. um, yeah, and so then I ended up chairing the crowdfunding industry with the SEC, and I was like 29 years old and uh, the only female in the room. And um, it was pretty amazing. You know, I, got, I was featured on the cover of the New York Times, which was so cool. And then I was sued for fraud. Um, my, my state mm. regulators uh, claimed that I tricked my investors into investing in an illegal company. And my investors all testified, no, she told us it was illegal. <laughs> we still invested. <laughs> um, and so the case ultimately settled 
but I still lost the company. And, mm. um, and at that point in life, um, I considered suicide mm -hmm. and, um, and rather than, um, going down that path, I went to Nepal and I lived in Nepal for two months, um, and trekked the Himalayas and went to meditation school and, um, decided I'd start all over again. And so I moved to Southern California and, um, ended up starting more businesses, uh, raising more VC, met my husband. Um, and so life fell back into place. And I guess the point of all of mm -hmm. this is, and I'm sorry for the long story, but I think it's important okay. to note that there is no other side. And right. so, you know, it's not like you just arrive and the work is done. Um, in life, you will iterate over and over and over again. And the beauty is trying to find how to begin again. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's, uh, I love that. Um, there's this sense of, I've been trying to find um, synonyms for uh, these five words that I believe innately inside of us, um, we desire. And that's, um, and I'm trying to find synonyms for these words. So everyone listening, bear with me. And if you have a synonym, maybe you can <laughs> suggest it, but fruitful, be fruitful. Uh, everything that we do, we want to see the fruit bared of our investment. We don't want uh, to keep toiling away and working away without seeing the return um, of our investment. So fruitful, uh -huh. then multiply. We want to see what we do bear more fruit. So we're a tree, say we're a nice apple tree and our, our tree is producing these beautiful apples. We want to see more apple trees produced as a result of our being fruitful. And then there's this concept of replenishing, uh -huh. constantly going back into the soil and fertilizing and cultivating and not letting the ground become hard and, and fallow and crust layered. It, it's this concept of replenishing. What you're saying is reinventing, being, trying things new, keep going. It's the cyclical way of looking at life. And it's, it's, um, it's powerful. I think it gives people hope that just because things are the way they are and they may be dark. I mean, I've talked about it on this episode. You just uh, mentioned that you, you know, contemplated suicide. I attempted it when I was 20 and those are dark, dark places. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredibly, that is just darkness. There's no, it's all consuming. It's, it's dark. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are today on a podcast hopefully making an impact to many people around the world. And it's because life replenishes, we replenish. And I, I think I'd also just say um, on that point of, of the darkness, um, you know, I, I think this is where love becomes even more important, right? Because, mm -hmm. because um, when I was considering suicide in 2013, I got a phone call from a friend. Um, and that phone call, he, you know, he, ha he owned a trekking company in Nepal and he said, you know, Hey, I, I know that you're not employable right now. I know you probably don't want to read the newspapers anymore. Why don't you just go to Nepal and write for me and do some marketing for my company? And had he not invited me, I don't know where I'd be right now. Had he not like mm. loved me enough to, to, to reach out 
and to offer me another option, another path, I might not be here today. And, mm. you know, it's because of David Cassidy, because of this one friend of mine that, that I'm here. And, and, and so you never know what, you never know the impact of your actions and your words. Um, and, right. you know, bringing this back to, to business for a moment, it's so easy to, to, um, to stay next, stay by the numbers and to speak down to people. I do. I mean, I, f- I find myself falling back to that often. And then I just remember, I don't know what this person is dealing with at home. I mm, don't know their right. story right now. They could be having a really hard day and how I treat them right now could make the difference. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for us to remember as we, as we go through, you know, otherwise stressful interactions in business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how let's let's maybe maybe we can solve a major pain point for people how can we keep that in mind i mean how can we keep that at the forefront of our mind the dalai lama you know he said be kind whenever possible and it's always possible so how do we keep kindness and and the other person's journey in the forefront of our mind I think for me, um, the way that I've been doing this the last six months um, has been writing a contract for myself and mm. taking responsibility for my contract. And so my contract is this. My name is Candace. My vision is to raise generous children. And I am an honest, open, and loving leader. And I remind myself of this daily I meditate with that contract every single day. Um, mm. I have it up in front of me. Literally, I'm looking at it right now. It's the only thing I see at my desk. Um, mm. And so as I'm having calls with clients, I have to have a coaching call with one of my employees today who who has, has dropped the ball a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. And I get to look at this contract when I'm speaking with him and remember mm. that it's not just about me. It's not just about the numbers. There's probably something happening on his side as well, and he probably it, he probably needs me to understand. Um, and so it's it's a daily it's a daily practice. But I, I honestly think re- like writing your contract and putting it in front of you in some meaningful way is a great way to keep that um, uh, top of mind. Hmm. Powerful, powerful. Everywhere we go, write it, write it at your office desk, write it at your home desk, write it, <laughs> write it in your car, have it everywhere. Yeah. Um, because yeah, we always need that reminding. Um, so Candice, first of all, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and you are, you're just a beautiful soul and what you're doing in this world. I'm honored to walk alongside you and I'm honored to it's just an honor to watch your growth and your vision to raise healthy children in this world is is so admirable and it is it is may we all strive to whether we have children ourselves or we see that there are children in this world that still need to be raised well and leave a legacy and and make a difference and an impact in this world so it's just beautiful listening to your story for people listening, if you were going to leave them with one golden nugget of how they can apply the golden rule in their life, what would that be? Hmm. 
I think the one piece of advice that I, I give to myself often is love yourself first. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that, that you cannot pour love out on others if you're not able to pour it on yourself. And so um, when, when you're feeling stressed or tired, find a way to give yourself love first. Talk to yourself as if you're a very dear friend um, and be kind to yourself first. And that will, that will pour out into the other aspects of your life. Mm, that's so good. That is so good. <laughs> I heard yesterday a mentor of mine, he and I were talking and um, what he said hit me like a ton of bricks. And he said, I delight. And just even hearing the word delight, you don't hear that word too often. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. He's like, I delight in who God made me to be. I rejoice in my strengths and I surrender my weaknesses. I'm like, whoa, mm. that, that's beautiful. Yeah. I delight in who I am. Simply my identity in this world. I delight in that. And I rejoice in my strengths and I surrender my weaknesses. And that's what I needed to hear yesterday. And I think what you just said is love yourself first because it's impossible to truly love others if we don't love ourselves first. Mm -hmm. It just becomes, if we, if we try to love people without self-love, it just becomes empty. Yep. It, it's not authentic. It's not sustainable. I'm looking uh, out my window right now at our lawn. And I have tried to, I have not tried. <laughs> uh, I have planted grass seed uh, two years in a row. I have watered the grass, uh, the seed and grass grew. But for some reason, I don't know why I did I if I didn't water enough or whatever, but the grass eventually died. So it doesn't even look like there was ever grass where I planted the grass seed. And it reminds me of people that don't have self-love and I'm going to, this is going to be a stretch, <laughs> but there's, there, but there's a good correlation to this is it wasn't sustainable. There, the roots weren't down in the ground deep enough to sustain whatever weather made it die. And so the circumstances were greater than the roots in the ground and without self-love circumstances in life can, will certainly be greater than the love that we try to share with others if we don't love ourselves. <sighs> love yourself so that you can love others. Because the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's really, what do you want to be done to you? Do you want to be loved? Do you want to be known? Do you want to be affirmed? Do you want to be led? Do you want to be all the good uh, brought to you, then you get to do that to yourself first so that we can all do it for each other. Candace, I love you. I'm thankful for you. And it's such a pleasure. I will make sure that I share this episode to the world <laughs> and uh, because I people need to hear this. We've, we started at business and this has been a beautiful journey. We've started at <laughs> business but brought it back to really us as individuals going out into the world, be that business, our relationships, our community. You talked about the culture inside companies and also the culture in our country right now. We need to hold love as the highest esteemed value and virtue. And that's where the healing happens. 
I love you too, Lucas. Thank you so much for letting me join. This has been awesome. Well, I so appreciate you listening today. This has been the Golden Rule Revolution where treating people like people is what is going to solve the hurt, the pain, the trauma, the conflict, the wars, the fights. People deep down desire to be loved and they desire to be known. And when we first have self-love and self-care and then go out into the world, we can love people robustly, powerfully, and our roots will be deep. The circumstances won't be greater than our vision and won't be greater than our love. And it will sustain whatever happens. And that is what we need more now than ever. My name is Lucas Mack. It has been such a pleasure having you join me on this podcast. As always, I ask you to share, like, comment, download, spread the word, and let's start the golden rule revolution in this country. Thank you.